You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. So this morning we uh, have a powerful example of someone who mistrusted God, then became in presence of God and experienced God's kindness and then was redemptively changed. Hosea's long ministry to the people of God, Israel, is also a ministry, maybe not as obvious, it was also to Judah. And we also see that Judah will be mentioned in this passage. Now, there's been 200 years since Israel and Judah have been divided, but they're essentially one people and their destinies intertwined. Each at its own pace, Israel falling before Judah, but Judah eventually will fall due to their sin and their own course to destruction. Hosea, throughout this prophecy, hints at the connection between the two. But Hosea also brings up another character, Jacob. And we learn a lot about Jacob in this passage. And it's in Hosea's account of Jacob, we learn much about deceit, much about God's kindness, much about misplaced dependence, and God-given trust. So follow along as I read from Hosea, beginning at verse 12 of chapter 11, and reading through Hosea, chapter 12, verse 14. Ephraim was surrounded, surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Syria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord in his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice. Wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find me in iniquity or in sin. I, the Lord your God, from the land of Egypt, I will again make you dwell in tents as the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets, And it was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps or the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram and that Israel, there Israel served for a wife and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has been given bitter proclamation, proclamation, and so his Lord will leave his bloodless guilt on him, and he will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as again, as we gather around your word this morning, as we look again at Israel's misplaced dependence, but yet we also see your unresolved kindness towards us. Pray, Holy Spirit, that if we identify with Israel in any way, that you would convict us and change us that you would move us to trust the gracious kindness of our God that we see in Christ. So do that work 
as we look at this word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You will notice this cartoon. It says, as a father is frantically looking for his phone, two little kids. I can see my daughter and son there. It says this, it must be an adult binky. They freak out when they can't find it. Does that resonate with you? It resonates with me. I think even my dog now barks at me for it. When I'm on my phone, he barks, give me attention, give me attention. And as I have been, as, as, as you know, I've been, I transitioned from a transitional pastor to a lead pastor. And I've, I've noticed that I have, as a transitional pastor, you know, you feel like it's, contem- it's temporary, right? But now that I'm a lead pastor, there's, there's a sense that I've taken a lot more ownership. And as I've been taking a lot more ownership, I often, am I going to go run to God and find my, depend upon God to do this? Or am I going to go upon methods or procedures that I think I know that I easily function in? Where am I depending on God in my life and ministry? And I've, I notice as I, as I wrestle with that, as I'm often um, emotionally drained at times, how it's making an impact on my soul and how much I need this message to be reminded that my dependence needs to be upon the Lord for he is the one that will renew me. He's the one that restore me. But I don't think I'm alone in that struggle of depending upon the Lord in our life. As this cartoon beautifully and yet convictively shows us of our misplaced dependence on things. And if we're honest, we're all dependent on something to make us happy, to make us pleased. It could be our spouse, it could be our work, it can be our children, it can be sex, it could be money, it could be relationships, almost everything else other than God. We're reminded again of God's people, Israel, lacking their trust in God, in fact, placing their dependence on what? Power, on idols, and on others, other than their covenant-keeping God. And we see much impact of that dependence, as Amanda was trying to bring out to the kids today. And so we will look at how our, our misplaced dependence, and we'll look how the impact, but we'll also look at God's resolved kindness. So let's first look at our misplaced dependence, because it plays out in our distrust of God's provision, the manipulation of God's presence, we'll go through this throughout, the rejection of God's providence, the denial of God's provision, and the refusal, refusal of God's particular redemption and direction. But that will be met in understanding God's kindness for us. But let's look at verses chapter 12, verse 11, chapter 12, and then 12, verse 1. Of verse 11, verse, chapter 11, verse 12, and through 12, 1. I will not read that verse again, but what we see in this passage is, again, God's people running from the Lord. First, let me clarify the comparison between Ephraim and Judah. Now, Judah was often thought more highly than Israel at this time because, basically because they had better kings. Their kings were more devoted to the Lord. They, often they led in good, in good ways, where Israel had very, had, had very good examples of kings during, their, during this reign. But we do learn from Israel how they distrusted God's protection by lying and being deceitful to get what they want. In one sense, they were following the patterns of Jacob which I'll elaborate more in a moment. And we see that Judah will eventually, too, forget God and his promises. We see in these two verses how very blatantly that God's people found more encouragement in the words of the false prophets, 
in the words of the national leaders than they did in God. They showed their true allegiance, and it was not with their holy, loving God. In fact, the word surrounded and house shows the depth of their mistrust and distrust of God's protection. See, they found protection, they found safety from others, from power, from their own worship of idols, rather than those what we can find real substance with God. And so as they distrusted God's protection, their sins increased and violence became the norm. Their distrust of God's protection led to destructive life patterns. Their lying and violence that we see, again, highlighted, is due to their covenantness. They felt that God did not complete them, that there was something more, so they needed these other things, and as they searched for these other things, it made them do ugly, ugly things. See, they wanted more than what God's protection offered, and so they made friendships with their enemies, Assyria. They turned to idols and to that to their own apparel. So the question for us as we look at this misplaced dependence as it looks like they, in this, this distrust of God's protection, how do we ask that question for our own life? Where do you and I go to define protection? Even as we think about this coronavirus that we're all hearing about and some are experiencing, who am I trusting for safety? Am I trusting the cultural trends of material things, false religion, the idols of our hearts? Or am I trusting God in the midst of this time? Am I aligning myself to these, these trends or things or idols, or am I relying myself to God? Am I distressing the protection that God has given me in my life? And if so, what am I turning to to protect me instead of God? See, not only has Israel distrusted God's protection, they manipulated God's presence. Look at verses 2 through 6. Here now Hosea brings Jacob to our attention. And it isn't all good when he does. Hosea brings another charge against God's people. Another indictment against God's people. And the charge is this. God's people have been deceitful from the very first. They tried to manipulate God from the get-go. In fact, their ancestor Jacob grasped his brother's Esau's heel while still in the womb, and so earned the name Jacob. In Genesis 25, chapter 25, verse 26, we see that his well-earned name was one of deceiver, one of supplanter. That was a name given to Jacob. And what Hosea is reminding God's people that the people of God's ancestry had, had a deceiver even before he was born. And his descendants then have committed in that, has committed that role again and again and again. We also see that Jacob strove with God, but initially it was out of sheer self-determination to manipulate God. He wanted his own way, so he went after God. And yet Hosea uses Jacob to get our attention. Calvin observes about this section that Jacob's favor with God listen, was not his conscious effort, but by the determined purpose and will of God. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So Calvin exhorts that this work of God should have stirred Israel to gratitude. As, as, they, as they remember Jacob, one of their forefathers, it should stir in their heart how God is to be thanked for the work that he has done. But it doesn't stir that at all. 
See, Jacob prevailed by wrestling with God, but Israel at this time, by contrast, has turned to idols, manipulating the worship of the true God. Jacob at birth had wrestled with his brother, and in his maturity he wrestled with God. But even that wrestling with God initially, he valued the inheritance promised by God more than God himself. And for Israel at this time showed no respect for the promise even of the inheritance. Basically, they were saying, I can pursue God on my own way, in my own, on my own terms. It's about me doing what I need to do. And so if I manipulate God, so be it. See, this passage may imply that Jacob's self-world efforts brought him nothing, and only when his strength was broken and he wept did he prevail. Israel's left God and did not seek God's presence, but they continued to run to their idols, thinking that these idols, somehow, they can experience the presence of God. How about us? How are we manipulating God to get our own way? To pursue things we believe we need, wealth, happiness? Where are we running from God's presence? Where are we turning to the false presence of God? So as I wrestle with what this means to be your lean pastor, what am I running to? Am I, am I trying to manipulate God's presence or am I actually running to him for strength and for renewal and for grace? They distrusted God's providence. They manipulated God's presence. And we see they also rejected God's providence. Look at verses 7 through 9. Let me ask you a question as you look at those verses. What has become their God? What has become their God? What have they accepted as gospel instead of God? Wealth. Wealth has become their God. Their wealth so consumed them that they cheated these use of false balances and impressed others to gain more wealth. Moreover, they determined that God did not make them wealthy. It was all they're doing. God's providence, no way, they boldly proclaimed throughout their lifestyle. This is about us. We did all this, God. You had nothing to do with what's going on right now. And so Israel rejected God's providence and how they treated even the poor. Listen, they even used dishonest means to take advantage of the poor. The Lord's heart throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament, he had a heart for the poor. He had a heart for the marginalized and is evident in his indictment of their oppression in Judah and Ephraim. It's a grievous sin condemned by the prophets and elsewhere in the Old Testament. In Leviticus, we see that the law made provision for the poor. The wisdom literature of the Bible, especially in Proverbs, upholds fair treatment of the less fortunate as a mark of faithful covenant life. The New Testament goes even further and views mistreatment of the poor as a mark of unbelief, James in chapter 2. The Apostle Paul undertook relief efforts for the poor believers, demonstrating the biblical principle that God cares about people's physical needs. However, we see here at this time that God's covenant people broke their covenant vows, acted like unbelievers by sinning boldly, by oppressing and defrauding, and taking advantage of the poor. Well, how about us? What use are we making of our gospel freedom, our high standard of living in the West, our leisure time, and our knowledge of the gospel? How are we using that to benefit for those who are poor, the marginalized, those who are hurting? How about those who are wrestling with the 
coronavirus? Are we lazy? Are we selfish? Are we materialistically minded Christians? Are we showing mercy? Are we showing compassion to the physical poor? Are we concerned for the, the physicalness of others? Article that I sent to some of our leadership in response to the coronavirus, Pastor Stephen Ko from New York City Chinese Alliance Church and also a former CDC medical officer, he says this, Jesus calls us to be his hands, feet, and voice to those who suffer illness. Sometimes for us that may mean consulting professionals who possess knowledge beyond our own expertise. It may mean taking precautionary measures in consideration of public health concerns like we're trying to do. But it should never, listen to this, but it should never, listen to this, but it should never mean ostracizing those who desire to meet the risen king. Instead of running away, we should be moving towards the ailing with the gospel. How are we doing that personally? How are we doing that corporately? We see God's people distrusting God's protection, manipulating God's presence, rejecting God's providence. And now we see how they deny God's provision and guidance. Look at verses 10 and 11. How did God's people deny God's protection or provision and guidance? What does it say in this passage? Primarily, they ignored the word of God. They ignored, they resisted, they rejected, they forgotten the word of God. God, throughout history, has used various forms of communications, visions, dreams, spoken word, parables, through the prophets and others to restore them to himself. But they have continually, and we continually resist the prophets, in fact, denying the very forms of communications that the prophets give us. This is why Calvin states this clearly. He says, I, God, deposited with them the doctrine which ought to have restored you to the right way. I have endeavored in every possible way to restore you to a sign, sound mind. And yet their guilt was, that they experienced was not in ignorance, but in defiance of God and his word. They are without excuse of God's provision and guidance because they have, they have been given everything. And, and even in that passage we looked at this Wednesday in 2 Peter, we've been given everything for godliness. They've been given everything for godliness in the word of God demonstrated in Christ. Friends, where are we denying God's loving instruction to us? What part of scripture are we, scripture are we ignoring, resisting, denying, forgetting? Is it that Jesus is the only way, and so that's too restrictive, so we don't want to deal with that? Or God doesn't judge our sin? No, we can't talk about that. Or are we holding on money too closely that we're not tithing or giving to the poor? Are we creating God in our own image? And then then the reality is it's all about making me happy. So God, if your word is not making me happy, so why do I need to follow it? I don't want to be uncomfortable. I want to do whatever I want regardless of the effects it has on others. Is that how we're living? Or is the word of God shaping us, molding us, moving us to reflect more and more, be effective and fruitful in the life that God has given us in Christ? We come to the last way that they show their misplaced dependence, and that is refusing God's particular redemption. Look at 12 through 14. 
These verses remind us that God has redeemed a people for himself. You see, Hosea's attempt to remind Israel that the Exodus was not just a liberation movement, but a spiritual event where God bought back his people through shedding of the blood. Again, Hosea is reminding them of redemption and the goal of redemption, restoring them to himself. In fact, even in our Lenten service, when we forget about God and the benefits and blessings of being in Christ, we will become effective, effective and unfruitful if we don't realize the great redemption that God has given us in Christ. God's people have forgotten that. Have we forgotten the gospel? Where have we missed the cross? Where do we need to remember day in and day out as we wrestle with who we're going to depend on or what we're going to be depend on? Do we need to remind it of this, the redeeming work that we have in Christ? Which brings me to God's resolved kindness. We see God's resolved and resolute kindness in the story of Jacob. Let me read that section in Genesis 32, 24 through 30. Follow along as I read this. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jacob. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven, striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. The context of this passage is that Jacob is full of fear. Why? He just left his father-in-law with family in tow to meet his brother Esau and his sizable army. Now, you need to know, right, Esau and Jacob had a horrible relationship. Jacob stole Esau's birthright, and since that time, they had been at war with one another. To note also, Jacob, years before, left home to escape Esau's anger and to find a suitable wife. And in that moment, he had a dream of a ladder of heaven. Both of these encounters help us to see God's resolved and resolute kindness. This upcoming encounter with Esau, he expected the worst. He was full of fear. What's going to happen? Am I going to be destroyed? Am my family going to be destroyed? What's going to happen if I meet with Esau? And so when Jacob was alone, all alone, by himself, God descended for the evening, and Jacob wrestled with God. So what do we learn about God's resolved and resolute kindness in Jacob's encounter with God? Borrow some of this from Ed Walsh's book, Draw Near, excellent book. We're doing this in our staff devotions. These are some highlights, he says. Jacob was alone, and it was dark. To state the obvious, this was in itself a reason for fear. But the intimate danger to his family posed by Esau makes this a watershed moment for Jacob. Would his family survive the next 24 hours? 
not even that Jacob was alone and he was full of fear, we see that God met him. See, God protects us by responding to our fears. Throughout Scripture, the Lord assured his people of his protecting presence during difficult and uncertain times. In this story, Jacob understood that God was in heaven, which was close enough to see. He, was also, he also knew that God comes even closer in dreams, that ladder to heaven, and on visitations on earth. Yet no one could have anticipated that God would come this close. Then we see God emptying himself of strength. Isn't that crazy? And I would say this is Jesus himself who came to Jacob. And we get a glimpse of how Jesus would later empty himself of all power for our benefit, for my benefit, and for your benefit. See, otherwise, a close encounter with God would be devastating to human beings. We also see God revealed his strength gently. That evening of wrestling was not enough to open Jacob's eyes to the Lord. But Jacob saw clearly after the brief touch that permanently injured, permanently injured his hip. God and his strength were revealed. Unexpected to this, the typical response to a close encounter with God of power is trembling and falling down before him in part worship and part pleading for mercy. Yet Jacob here kept wrestling, kept on wrestling and insisting on blessing. Because of God's kindness, those who know God know that he has a kind to hear and a kind to bless. And we do see that God has blessed him. Don't miss this. With, when Jacob still tightly holding on to the man, the Lord blessed him with a new name, Israel, which, which his former name, Jacob, right, meant deceiver. But that no longer defines him anymore. He had lived with his wits and mischievous ways, but now Jacob would live as a prevailer, prevailer with God. His name means prevail. Jacob actually met face to face with God, clung to him, and received God's most awesome blessing. The name, the change in his name was a blessing. Right? In Christ, our names have been changed. We're no longer orphaned and lost, but we're his sons and daughters and found. We're no longer defined in our sin, but we're defined by the righteousness of Christ. Our name has been changed is the good news for us today. So what do we learn from this as well? Well, we know that God still protects us. God's protection. In the story of Jacob, God, Jacob draws Israel's attention to the kind reality that he protects his own. God reminds us, if I can help Jacob deal with Esau, I can help you deal with the influences of powerful nations and the attraction of false worship. Fill in the blanks for you. If I can help Jacob deal with Esau, this incredible military armor that could have destroyed them in an instant, I can help you deal with whatever you are dealing with today. See, in Jacob, God reminds us that God delights to protect us from harm. We cause ourselves and our misplaced dependence and the harms others can cause when we are tempted to follow the ways of the world. God is a God of protection, but also we see God is a God of presence. Look at verses 3 and 6. Did, did, Esau, did Jacob find God or did God find Jacob. No, God found Jacob. See, while observing Jacob's enthusiasm for the blessing, Jacob did not earn the blessing by his effort. It was not that Jacob found God, but God found Jacob. The latter he saw in previous sections of Scripture, let down from heaven, not raised on earth. The Son of God came down 
from heaven, to lift up the people of God. See, Jesus is that true ladder to our Father. And that's what is beautifully described in verse 5. It says, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord in his memorial name. Long before Hosea's day, God was identified himself to Moses with the name, I am who I am. I am who I am, which means Yahweh, transliterate Yahweh. In the ESV, it's, it's, we see Lord with small capital letters. Don't miss this. That divine name identifies God as creator, sustainer, that all that exists. The name is also a clear reminder of God's promises to his people that he'll be with them and he will help them. God's resolved and resolute kindness, his presence is with him. In fact, Jesus Christ was also called Lord, identifying him with God. When Jesus said in John 8, he said, before Abraham, I am. Here, Jesus is claiming that he is with God, that he is God who appeared with Moses. The Lord is with us. His presence is with us in Christ. We also learn from God's presence, his prevailing prayer. Jacob gives us a lesson on prevailing prayer. It was a helpless prayer of a crippled man that prevailed at last with God. See, in God's resolved kindness, he may cripple us with certain disciplines in order to help us in our intercessions. Are we prepared to wrestle in dependence upon God? That came more clearly to me when we lost our son. I wrestled with God. And as I wrestled with God, he broke me and reminded me that he gives and he takes away. Not because he wants to hurt me, but because he loves me. He wants me to know that he, I can trust him in what life brings my way. God's providence. What does God's providence show us in this passage? Well, it's a heart check. Hosea faithfully shows through Jacob how actively, how actively he sustains and guides human actions. Even though Jacob often pursued the blessing of God by wrong means, yet Jacob assessed it rightly and desired it earnestly. Jesus himself commands, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he directs us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, through the work of God's providence, what God brings our way, as God brings this, this threat of coronavirus our way, God's providence, are we growing to trust him in the midst of this time? Or are we turning to other things? Do we really believe that God is actively working here and now in our lives today? He is, and trust that work. God's provision, verse 10. God provided the way. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. See, God has used variety of methods, as I said before, to reach people and show both his greatness of his love and kindness and the depth of wisdom and understanding he delights to give us. God persevered with us. He perseveres with us in spite of our insensitive dullness, our stubborn ignorance, and our spiteful and forgetfulness. God delights to win his people back from their arrogant ways. This is God's resolved and resolute kindness. And lastly, we see God's particular redemption. God shepherds his people. Look at verse 12 and 13. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. This is a beautiful metaphor for us. 
God guarded his, Jacob guarded his particular sheep in order to win his bride. The Lord sent prophets to guard his particular people. What resolved and resolute kindness of God. See, the security that Israel, God's people, craved would have been theirs if only they had remained under the divinely appointed guardian, his covenant-keeping God. The law, too, serves as a guardian for the people until the coming of Christ when the new covenant was instituted by God in Galatians 3, we see. And now, under this new covenant, God's particular people are guarded by faith, guarded by faith in Christ, kept safe until Christ's return. Those who believe in Jesus Christ will never fall away because the Lord himself is their guardian shepherd. We're reminded in 2 Thessalonians. In fact, Jacob, who tended and guarded sheep in pronouncing his final blessing on his sons, he speaks of a shepherd in a remarkable prophecy. He says this, in Genesis 49, 24, looking forward to the Messiah, he says, By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Since that time, we have seen many Messiah-like shepherds, Moses, David, as well as prophets who pointed us to the true shepherd, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. In the Psalms, we're confronted, right? The Lord is my shepherd. In these accounts, we see the shepherd leading, guarding, defending, protecting the sheep from harm and from going astray. And in fact, the shepherd's about helping them, point them to save them and to redeem them, right? God himself pronounces that he, that he will gather his particular scattered sheep until, and it will bring judgment on those who have failed to shepherd the, the flock well in Ezekiel 34. All of this is pointing us to Jesus. In Matthew 26, 31, Matthew shares a prophecy in Zechariah 13.7 talking about a stricken shepherd. And Matthew is saying this applies to Jesus. John 10.11, Jesus himself says what? I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd, what? Lays down his life for the sheep. Peter, Jesus, in his interaction with Peter, he remember Peter denied him three times. In John 21, we see this interaction with with Peter, he says, to tend to my sheep, to feed my sheep, to care for my sheep. And then Peter later referred to elders as shepherds. Friends, the metaphor emphasizes the vulnerability of all of humanity without God. We need a shepherd. You need a shepherd. I need a shepherd. And without one, we will surely go astray and fall into harm. And as Israel experienced in, in, as Israel has experienced in rejecting and forgetting their shepherd. Additionally, this metaphor of the shepherd emphasizes the patient care, listen, the patient care and resolved kindness of God in dealing with wayward children like you and I, of bringing us home. It's also about caring for his people and renewing us and restoring us and helping us to be effective and fruitful. It ultimately points us to Jesus Christ, who saw the crowds as sheep having no shepherd where it says, I came to seek and to save the lost. Let me conclude with this amazing kindness. In Revelation 1.17, we see the ultimate glory of the shepherd. It says this, listen, the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them. The lamb who's in the midst of the throne will shepherd them 
and lead them. Friends, can one imagine a sheep ever complaining that the shepherd does not really understand them? You see, we cannot complain either because we have one who shepherds We have one who shepherds us, who does understand, for we have a shepherd. We have a shepherd who has been a lamb. We have been a shepherd who has been a lamb. The lamb who was sacrificed for us. A lamb who gave his life for us. A lamb, that perfect sacrifice, so that we can know God, that we can trust God, that we know that he has our best for us. Because we have a lamb who understands us. He's walked with us. He identifies with us. And yet this lamb, this shepherd, became a lamb for you and for me. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your work of grace. Father, I know that in all of these examples of God's people's mistrust, misguided dependence that I can fall in every one of them. And I need to be reminded of this gospel promise that the lamb has come to shepherd me. Father, we all need to remind it that we have this lamb has come to shepherd us, shepherd us, to lead us, to care for our souls, to restore us, to redeem us, to bring us into an eternal relationship with you. Oh, Father, if any of these areas in our lives that we are struggling with, God's protection, God's provision, God's guidance, God, convict us, change us, mold us in the image of your son. Thank you that we have a shepherd who was the lamb so that we can know you, O God. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org.